Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. looking at Psalm 11 this morning. So as you find that, please stand for the reading of God's word. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his, temp- his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the reading of the word of God. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, anyone who has been on the campus of the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, might recognize this building that's located there. This is called the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts. And at its opening in 1989, Newsweek described this as America's first deconstructionist building. And it was so described because as you enter this building, you would find stairways that don't go anywhere. You would find pillars that hang from the, feet, from the ceiling with no apparent purpose. And there would be angled surfaces that were designed to create a sense of vertigo. Christian author Ravi Zacharias reports that the architects, Peter Eisman and Peter Trott, designed the building in in an attempt to reflect life itself, a life that was random, senseless, and incoherent. And when Ravi heard the rationale for the building, he said he had just one question for the architects. And that question was, did the architects do the same thing with the foundation? Now, Ravi's question exposes the folly of the philosophical statement attempted by these architects, and it also reminds us of the importance of foundations. Anyone who knows anything about structures or buildings knows how important foundations are. If the foundations of a structure are weak or cracked, it doesn't matter how strong the rest of the structure is. It will eventually collapse. And that's true not just of buildings and houses, but that's true also of people groups, of nations, and of cultures in a moral and a spiritual sense. If the moral and spiritual foundations of a culture are weak or cracked, everything will eventually fall apart. The importance of foundations is recognized in Psalm 11. When we read the words, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And this is a psalm that helps us explore the question of how we can live as Christians in a crumbling culture. It's a psalm that explores the question of when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? How does faith respond 
when everything around seems to be falling apart. That's what this psalm is attempting to deal with. And in our working our way through the psalm, we'll notice three things. First, we see a problem for the righteous. Second, we see a perspective for the righteous. And then finally, we see a promise for the righteous as well. So we want to start with a problem for the righteous. The problem facing the righteous in Psalm 11 is apparently that the foundations are being destroyed. That's what we read in verse 3. The foundations are being destroyed. But what exactly does that mean? We're not given a lot of specific details about the occasion of this psalm of David. Some people believe that this psalm was written at a time when David was hiding in caves, fleeing from the pursuit of King Saul. Now, if that's the case, this psalm was written at a time when the established government and the religious authorities embodied at this time in the monarchy, in King Saul, are opposed to and seeking to destroy the Lord's anointed. Okay, let me say that again. If that's the occasion of this psalm, it's written at a time when the established government and the religious authorities are opposed to godly people. And it would be safe to say that whenever that's the case, when established governments and religious authorities are pursuing to persecute the righteous, then the foundations of a culture are being destroyed. But we can't be too dogmatic about the background of the psalm. We don't know if that's exactly when it was written. What we can seem to say pretty safely is that this psalm is being written at a time when the safety and security of God's people is threatened and when the stability of the culture is collapsing. What's being reported is the foundations are being destroyed uh, by the wicked and their intentions. Now, if that's the case, stated this way, it does seem that this psalm is particularly relevant to those of us living in the United States today, right? I mean, it's not hard to imagine someone lamenting the fact that the foundations morally and, morally and spiritually in the United States are being destroyed. And I'm not sure too many people in this room would wish to refute such a claim. I mean, just consider that not only are the Ten Commandments routinely broken in this country, because actually that's going to happen all the time. Sinners will break the Ten Commandments. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Redeemer. But not only are the Ten Commandments broken regularly in this country, lawlessness is actually defended and celebrated as something good in the culture. For example, let's just walk through the Ten Commandments and see how this is the case. First commandment is to have no other gods before the one true God. We live in a culture that is intolerant of the idea that there is only one true God who alone is worthy of our worship and who alone speaks the truth. We're intolerant of the idea. Now, we don't routinely make physical images of God, but we do make mental images of God. And we're often guilty as a culture of fashioning God in our image rather than attempting to define ourselves in his image. The name of God is routinely taken in vain. The name of Jesus is routinely taken in vain. So common is this that now it's been reduced to an acronym. You don't even have to say the whole thing anymore. It's just O-M-G as a figure of speech, taking the Lord's name in vain. The Sabbath is not regularly kept. Even Christian businesses in this country are often open 
on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. The duty of honoring one's parents is neglected, not only by children, but it's not something instilled by parents. Parents don't instill a sense of honoring authority figures in our country on a routine basis. The practice of murder actually has institutional sanction in this country in the practices of abortion and euthanasia. If you want to talk about adultery, divorces are sky high, and pornography, an industry built on lust, is rampant. Illegal downloading of copyrighted material is regarded as commonplace. It's a matter of course that you would do this, as is fudging information on one's tax forms. If you want to talk about coveting, just look what we've done to the celebration of Christ's birth. It is a holiday of greed and covetousness. And that's not just stuff that's happening out there. It affects us as well. But when these things are routinely done, defended, and celebrated, it is safe to say that a culture is crumbling at its foundations. Some of you might remember an article several years ago that explored some of the reasons the Roman Empire fell. And in this article, several things were mentioned as contributing factors to the fall of the Roman Empire. Among them, the deterioration of the family unit, growing laxity and relativism in educational standards, a lack of transforming religious conviction that actually made a difference in the way that people lived, a growing priority on pleasure-seeking and entertainment, economic irresponsibility, both at the governmental and individual level. Uh, Just think debt. Governmental debt, individual debt. Expanding bureaucracy to maintain the standard of living in the empire and a thinning of military power. Now, I actually don't know if these are legitimate factors in the fall of the Roman Empire. The fall of the Roman Empire and the reasons for it is actually debated quite often. But if these constitute the marks, the signs, the indicators of a crumbling culture, then the nation we live in certainly qualifies. The foundations are falling apart. British journalist Steve Turner, so this is not just happening in the United States, a British journalist several years ago wrote an essay entitled Creed in which he attempted to describe the beliefs of modern people. And this is what he wrote as his creed. Steve Turner doesn't actually believe this, but he's writing to reflect modern thought. He writes, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. And we believe that taboos are taboo. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we've read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens... They say nothing. 
And if death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, excepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. This describes a culture that's crumbling and its foundations. We live in a culture where people can make routine plans just to see a movie premiere and get gunned down like an animal by someone who's acting and thinking like an animal. That's the culture we live in. I mean, do you feel safe and secure walking the streets at night? Do you feel safe allowing your children to play at a corner playground in the neighborhood without direct supervision? I mean, do you even feel safe in your home where we read accounts of children being abducted from their very own bedrooms? Do you feel safe in the world around you? Do you feel safe on the road with road rage? I got I to tell you a story. My family was leaving for vacation. We were heading up to northwest Indiana to visit some friends, and we were on uh, a 465 headed to 65. And you know when you're behind a car... I was, I was behind a semi, actually, and you have to slow down because there's other cars passing you in the passing, and you kind of have to wait until it clears to get over. But you also have a car that's behind you that knows you've had to slow down and knows that you'll need to get over, but they get over before you do. Well, sometimes I let that go. I think, okay, I'll let him pass too, and then I'll get over. And sometimes I don't let it go. On this particular occasion, I thought, this guy knows I need to get over. I'm getting over too. So I get over. I'm just about ready to pass the semi when I look in my rearview mirror and he's right on my bumper. He's right on my bumper. Sometimes I let that go too. Uh, but when my kids are in the back seat, I have a tendency not to. So I'm not opposed to give individuals the back off sign. Now, my back off sign is nothing obscene. It's just lifting my hand high enough to the driver can see it and telling him to back off, which is what I did. Now, this guy completely lost it. So as soon as I get back in my lane, he comes up and pulls beside me, and he is yelling every name at me in the book, giving me every obscene gesture in the book. And so angry with this guy, he's telling me that he was calling my license plate number in, and he's so animated and enraged that he actually almost causes an accident himself and has to pull off to the side of the road, and that's when we lost sight of him. This is happening on the roads that we drive on, The foundations are falling apart. And here's the problem for the righteous. If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Isn't that a question that you ask? What are you supposed to do in a crumbling culture where morals and spirituality is disintegrating around you? What are you supposed to do? What's the answer? Well, notice in the psalm that this is what David hears. What's the answer? Here's what David hears. Flee like a bird. Flee. Withdraw. Retreat from the world. This is your path to safety. What else can the righteous do? 
But notice also in the psalm that David asks, how can you say that to me? How can you say that? Because David has a different perspective. So let's look at that secondly. We see also in the psalm a perspective for the righteous. Notice how the psalm begins. David declares that he takes refuge in the Lord. And because he makes this statement, that's how he follows up by asking, how can you say to me to flee like a frightened bird to a mountain? How can you say that to me when I've taken refuge in the Lord? He further refutes this advice that he's getting in verse 4 when he says this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Basically what David is saying is regardless of what's going on around him, he is not without his anchor. He is not deprived of a sure and solid foundation upon which to stand. Regardless of the mess that David's in, right in the midst of the danger, of the chaos, of the confusion, of the sorrow, of the disillusionment, David is saying this, in the midst of it all, God is in control. David doesn't believe for one second that the government of the universe is being threatened or that it's being left to chance. David is declaring that God is ruling from his throne and he is sovereign. Now, I want us to notice a couple of things. Notice the assumption behind the advice that David is hearing to flee like a, mount, to flee like a bird to your mountain. The advice that he's hearing, the primary objective behind that advice is the assumption that safety is all important. Safety is the primary objective. So flee, withdraw, retreat. That's the answer when safety is the primary objective. But listen, if you're expecting or even if you're demanding a discipleship in which you can follow Jesus without risk, you're going to be disillusioned and unfruitful as a Christian. If you think you can follow Jesus without risk, you're going to be disillusioned and unfruitful as a Christian. Don't think for a second that you can follow Jesus and be a faithful disciple and remain safe and undisturbed in the world. You can't. But is, is safety your main objective? Is that, is that how you're living your life at work or in your relationships where you refrain from doing what you know is right because of the risk involved? Or you refrain from speaking the truth in love or sharing the gospel with those people because of the risk involved? Is that how you handle your finances? Refusing to take any risk for the cause of the kingdom, something the world would look at as being foolish. Is that the way we're raising our children? Because sooner or later, we have to make a decision in raising our children whether our main objective is to raise safe kids or to raise strong kids. Kids who flee from the challenges of the world or kids who are able to face those challenges in the confidence of the truth of God. Now, I don't think all the time that those things are mutually exclusive, safe kids or strong kids. But sometimes they are. And we have to decide what our priorities are. And ultimately the bottom line is this. We have to ask ourselves as Christians in the midst 
of a crumbling culture, we have to ask ourselves, am I living in such a way that reflects my belief that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world? Do I live like I believe that? The second thing I want us to notice is the difference in perspective. In verse 2, we see that the eyes of David's advisor are fixed on the wicked. How does verse 2 begin? Behold, in other words, look, you got to flee, you got to retreat, you got to withdraw because look, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot it in the dark at the upright in heart. But that's not a perspective for the righteous. That's not David's perspective. Instead, David lifts up his eyes and by faith sees God ruling from his throne. So what do you look at when everything is falling apart? Do you look at the things that are crumbling and respond in despair? Or are you able to rest on the unshakable foundation of the throne of the sovereign God? Even in the midst of the crumbling and the chaos and the danger, are you able to find rest because your gaze is fixed on the sovereign God? Some of you may not like me for this, but I'm a fan of LeBron James. And I'm glad that he won the NBA title this year with the Miami Heat. Now, some of you may not follow NBA basketball, but the Miami Heat were actually underdogs in this year's NBA finals to the Oklahoma City Thunder. They lost game one of a best-of-seven series, and game two was very close all the way down to the wire until Oklahoma City Thunder's best player, Kevin Durant, missed a two-point shot to tie the game late on a shot that many think LeBron fouled him on, but that's beside the point. LeBron then subsequently got the rebound, and then he was fouled. And so with very little time left on the clock, he was going to the foul line with a chance to seal the game and tie the series at one game apiece. And when LeBron went to the foul line, this is what he had to look at. Now, in a moment like this, it's very important to get your focus right. He cannot look at the crowd. He cannot look at his enemies, his opponents, who are aiming their arrows of mocking and criticism and yells at him. He cannot focus on that. Instead, he has to zero in and focus on the rim, which is 15 feet away, always, 10 feet high, always, and 18 inches in diameter from every gym he's played in since he was a kid. That's what he has to focus on. And again, as Christians, in a crumbling culture, in a hostile environment, don't focus on the arrows of the wicked or the enemies of the truth and fear them. But instead, focus on your anchor, who is always constant, always faithful, always unmoved. Focus on the sovereign God who is in control and is ruling for his people. By the way, LeBron made both free throws, and Miami never lost another game. Uh, But the important thing, you know, we're not the first Christians to be in a hostile environment. We're not the first Christians to witness a crumbling culture. It's happened again and again 
in history. So what can the righteous do? Well, the first thing we have to do is get our perspective right. We don't need to flee. We don't need to live in fear. Look to the Lord, the one who will judge the wicked and the one who triumphs over the violent. Look to the Lord. Only he can stop the tide of evil in the world anyway. And he promises to do so. The wicked and the evil and the violent will not ultimately gain the victory. So look to the Lord and walk by faith. Walk by faith believing what we sing in the hymn, This Is My Father's World, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Live like you believe that. God is the ruler yet. Now this is not to say that we need to be all pessimistic about the future of our country. The gospel has the power to transform lives. The gospel has the power to transform nations. A mighty work of the Holy Spirit can renew this country. But that's not ultimately our hope. Our hope is not in the renewal of our country. Our hope is in a promise for the righteous. So I want to conclude with this. There's a coming day when we will see the justice and righteous rule of God established in the world. And that will happen when Jesus comes again. That's our hope. Our hope is in Jesus coming back again and setting things right. And then we shall lie down in safety. But even then, safety is not the end result or the goal that we're after. Because notice how the psalm ends in verse 7. The upright shall behold his face. That's the promise for the righteous. Derek Kidner has commented by saying this, if the first line of the psalm showed where the believer's safety lies, the last line shows where his heart should be. God as refuge may be sought from motives that are too self-regarding, but to behold his face is a goal in which only love has any interest. Another writer says this, there are many who are interested in safety, but only saints care about fellowship. The genuine disciple doesn't want only protection from God, but communion with God. So if this is where your heart is, then you can know, Christian, that you will behold his face. That the sovereign God is your God, your protector, your deliverer, and you shall behold his face. Nothing can separate you from that. That's what Romans 8 teaches us. The arrows of the wicked cannot separate you from that, and a crumbling culture cannot separate you from that. And the reason it can't separate you from that is because nowhere did the foundation seem more destroyed when then Jesus the righteous was crucified by the wicked, by sinners like you and me. No, no place in history did it seem that the foundations were destroyed more than then. And yet through his death and resurrection, Jesus has won victory over the wicked and the violent. And through his death and resurrection, he has laid for us a firm foundation upon which to stand in every trial and every danger, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the solution to the problem of crumbling foundations because you are faithful and unmoved. You're constant, you're never crumbling, and you are a secure anchor. 
So may we fix our eyes upon you and may we look forward to the fulfillment of the promise for those who look to the coming of Jesus, who is our firm foundation. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.